Good evening. It's very good to be here. Thank you, Monica, for that wonderful intro. Um, for those of you that I don't know, I want you to know that I love, absolutely love being a papa. I love being a dad. This past week, our daughter Moira just turned five, and you would think with all the excitement that was leading up to it, it was as if she was about to get her driver's license or get to be able to vote. She was so amped, and just like every day, like a month in advance, we had to say, Moira, let's wait. It's not even the week of your birthday yet. Let's just wait. But I loved her excitement. I loved seeing that. And as I've been watching her grow and learning what it means to be a dad, I keep reflecting back to my own childhood. And one of the things that sticks out is how excited my parents were to share things that they were passionate about with us. This is a picture of me and my brother. I'm the one with the rad bowl cut, and my brother Isaac is the one with the Sesame Street belt. <laughs> pretty rad, pretty vintage. But I remember when we were kids, my parents were excited to share things that they were excited about. For my dad, it, a lot of it was music. He loved to share music with us. The Beatles, loved the Beatles. Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, all this wonderful stuff. It was great, even the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. He had this double LP or whatever on vinyl, and we used to borrow his big air, like um, huge headphones. They're like twice the size of our heads. And we'd sit there and listen to these vinyls, and it was incredible. It sounded so good. My dad actually had an eight track player in the car, too. It shows how old maybe I am or he was. Um, sorry, Dad. Um, and my wife, or my mom, my mom loved to share things like movies. Like she, I remember she was the one who introduced us to Goonies. And I was like, thank you, Mom. Thank you. Goonies and, and Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin movies. I love Jerry Lewis, the guy's hilarious. So it's been wonderful to do that, and as I've been able to be a dad, I've been able to do the same thing, and I love being able to share music with my daughter. And so as a child of the 80s and the 90s, rock and roll was a big thing, so one of my favorite things is to be in the car and say, Moira, what kind of music do you want to listen to? Rock and roll! Like, yes, I'm a good dad. It's so cool. And you know, my wife loves to share about the books that she's interested in and sharing those books that were important to her, to Moira as well. And it's so cool to see her eyes light up as she discovers the world around her. And for me, as I've been thinking about this, I am completely convinced that the Lord feels the same way about us. That he's excited to share things with us. As we come to know him, as we mature, he sees the things that we're ready to take, parts of his character that he wants to share with us, parts of his creation that he wants us to enjoy. And I just get this sense that God is the same way with us. Just like, I can't wait. I cannot wait till I get to share this with them. They're gonna love it. It's for them. And as we've been going through this series, The Table, it feels like that, that God is doing that. He's saying, I wanna welcome people to my table. I wanna welcome people into my presence that they can get to know me better. And that's why this is such a wonderful series to be a part of. We've been going through it for the past few weeks. And one of the books we've been kind of referring to is A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. So check it out, it's very good. Um, but we've been doing that for the past few weeks, and we started off with Rob. Rob started off by talking about, um, in Luke 14, where we see God's readiness to invite all to the table, that everyone is welcome to engage with this kingdom. And he had this painting, Dave LaChapelle painting, which has been used every week because we like it so much. That's such a wonderful picture of what the table would look like now, how diverse it would be. Jesus welcoming people and saying, I want you to know me. I want you to walk with me. That's a diverse group of people. It's great, Jesus, Jesus was ready to invite people to the table. Last week, Monica was talking about um, looking at Luke 5 and showing how Jesus was willing to heal. He doesn't come just to bring, he doesn't come to bring shame, but to show healing, to show us who we really are and to show mercy. And I love that, that mercy is greater than shame. What a powerful message that was. What a powerful message. And this week, we're gonna keep on going. And as I was looking at this, this readiness and this willingness 
I believe that it is here that we are posed with the question of whether or not we are able to do the work of living in and welcoming people to the kingdom of God. Are we able to welcome people to the table? So for tonight, the topic or the title is going to be ready, willing, but able. I want to think about that tonight as we look at Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and 17. If you do have your old-fashioned paper Bibles, you can go ahead and open to that. Otherwise, it'll be on screen. Convenient. But why don't we open in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to feel like we get to share a glimpse of how you see us, share a glimpse of the excitement that you have to reveal yourself to us. It's such an honor, Lord, to do that. And God, I, every time I pray up here, I think, ah, oh, just like it says in your word, Lord, in Isaiah, that just like the, the rain and the snow falls to the ground and it doesn't bear, it bears fruit, it has to bear fruit. It does that, Lord, that when your word is spoken, when your word is out there, it breathes life. It brings about transformation. It brings change. I love that there's that promise. And so, Lord, as we look at your word tonight, that's what we're asking for. Bring life into our hearts. We don't want to leave here unchanged. And I thank you, Lord, that that's a promise when it comes to your word, that your word does that. So let's start. Well, first, let's back up. First, I want to get a little bit of the context of where we are. So the disciples have just been sent out by Jesus, and he's sent them out to, let's get the wording right. He sends them out to drive out all demons, cure diseases, preach the kingdom of God, and heal the sick. Not too much of a list. You know, just light stuff. I love that it says that. Drive out all demons, not some, not most, but all demons, cure diseases, preach the kingdom of God, and, might as well round it all out, heal the sick. But there's a catch. There's a catch in God's kingdom. He tells them, don't bring your staff, don't bring your bag, don't bring your money, and don't bring an extra shirt, which I kind of think, was that an issue? I don't know, but don't bring an extra shirt. He's telling them, you cannot rely on your own things. You cannot rely on your circumstances. You cannot rely on yourself. You got to trust in God. What a wonderful and scary and exciting place to be in. They had to depend on God to provide for everything for them, including the power to do the miraculous. And they did. And that's where we find them here right now. So follow along with me. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, Jesus, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages in the countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. But he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, because there's about 5,000 men there. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, I want to take a pause here because I think for some of us that are familiar with the story, it'd be easy to kind of rush past some of these really important details. One of them being, it says there's 5,000 men. Now, God, forgive me. I'm going to make some guessing here. If I'm totally off, forgive me. I'm going to assume it wasn't just men. It wasn't a promise keepers conference. It wasn't just a dude thing. It wasn't a men's retreat. I'm assuming that there was probably women there too. And I'm going to go off on a, on a, 
I'm gonna say there's like 5,000 women. Let's say 5,000 men, 5,000 women, that's 10,000. Now I'm assuming some of them had families and they probably didn't have daycares and stuff back then, maybe they did. I'm gonna assume there's kids there too. So let's just say 5,000 men for sure, maybe 5,000 women and 5,000 kids. We've got about 15,000 bodies there. And I'm assuming it wasn't a beautiful painting where everyone was peaceful and quiet and just relaxing and taking it all in and very well behaved. I'm assuming it was pretty smelly. I'm assuming it was noisy. I'm assuming it was a little bit chaotic, exciting, because they'd already seen things that Jesus had been doing, so there's an excitement there, but I'm assuming it was also pretty chaotic. One thing to add to this, when I was reading about this, I thought, oh man, this is crazy, is it says that he healed those who needed healing. Now think of this. You got 15,000 people, one person gets healed. Okay, one or two people find out about that. Oh, so-and-so got healed. Hey, talk to so-and-so, they should get healed too. Then it's two people get healed. Then it's three, then it's five, then it's 10. And word starts to spread around these 15,000 people that Jesus is not only touching people, but he's healing them. It was chaotic before. Imagine how much more chaotic it was then. Then you got people rushing the stage. I've got a headache. I lost my leg. I don't know. But they're saying, this Jesus, he heals. I want to be healed too. Now, I'm imagining that didn't happen just over breakfast time. That probably took a few days. Just to kind of give a little picture, without these curtains, this place safely seats 550 people. Now, multiply that by 27 to 28, 27 to 28 times, and you're getting an idea of how big this crowd was. Beautiful kingdom chaos. And the disciples are responding to this, and they're saying, Jesus, we got to send these people home because they need a place to stay. They got to get food. You know, we don't have the resources for that. Why don't you just go ahead and send them to go get some food? That's the scene that we are in. Beautiful kingdom chaos. There's a few things I see immediately looking at this passage. The first thing is that the kingdom of God is inconvenient. The kingdom of God is inconvenient. And I don't mean that to be offensive, it's just a reality. God's ways are beyond, are different, they're other than our ways. They're better, but they're different. Then they withdrew by themselves, but the crowds learned about it and followed them. Send the crowd away. Sometimes the kingdom can be inconvenient. And this isn't the only time we're going to see this. A little bit later on in Luke, we see that the disciples also are with a bunch of kids. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, it says this, people were also bringing their babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. <sighs> disciples. Seriously. I when I get to heaven, I hope there's like a replay of some of this stuff. I just want to watch Jesus' response when the disciples do this. I would love to see it. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The disciples should totally give us hope. If they didn't get it, we're not alone. The kingdom can be inconvenient. The next thing is responsibility and inability. Responsibility and inability. The disciples were only able to see the physical reality of their situation and were limited in what they thought was possible. Only with Jesus were the disciples able to feed the people. And this blows my mind because remember what just happened. They just healed people, drove out all demons, not some, all demons, preached the kingdom of God and saw these miracles. And they're witnessing Jesus healing 
thousands of people, I'm assuming, in this crowd, and yet they still have little faith. Oh, God, they're hungry. Hunger is so much more important than being healed. We can't handle this. They just needed to say yes to Jesus. They'd already said yes before, and they saw incredible things happen. They saw the kingdom growing. They're responsible, but totally unable. And three, Jesus points to the cross. I do believe that Jesus' breaking of the bread and fish was not an empty gesture. Not a cool thing, not something to kind of get the crowd riled up, like, look at this. No. This is the ending of the first half of the Gospel of Luke with Jesus' ministry, because from here, do you know where he turns? Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. Now, I have to believe, I want to believe that as he's doing this in his mind, he knows where he's going. And it's almost this beautiful gesture where he's saying, I'm going to break this bread and it will be enough. Not only enough, it'll be more than enough. Jesus is giving thanks and I believe that's pointing to what is to come. Now, with God's word, I always believe there's application. It's not meant just to tinkle our ears and get us excited. It's meant to be applied. And even though it happened years and years ago in the past, it is so relevant today. So there's three major things that I want us to take away with, take away with from tonight. Yeah, go with. The first thing is this, reaction versus response. Reaction versus response. When God speaks to us, it is not always in ways that we would prefer. When God directs us, it is not always in directions we want to go. When God leads us, in, it is not always with people we want to work with. When God leads us, it's not always the people we want to work with. When God invites us to join him in mission, it is not always into situations that we find comfortable. What stands out to me is how the disciples tend to instantly react to difficult situations instead of responding with learned wisdom. Reaction, reaction, reaction. They see something and their first instinct is, mm, fix it. There's this book, not a Christian book, because there are other books out there, um, called The Power of Healthy Tension. It's on the screen, and I brought it, by Tim Arnold. And I love that title, The Power of Healthy Tension. In this book, he talks about the fact that in life, there's not always problems to solve, but sometimes there's just tensions to manage. And I think it's a really powerful thing. It's a really small book. So it's a good read. I haven't read it. But Wendy did, and she said it was good. <laughs> Gotta be honest. Sorry. But in it, he uses an analogy of a riptide or rip current. Now, it's New Zealand, so what, 95% of people surf here? Am I right? So I hope I get this analogy right, because even though I'm from California, I don't surf. I have surfed, but that's gracious to say that I surfed. I got on the water. But there's this thing called a riptide or a rip current, and what it is is something very, very dangerous. Now, again, if I say this wrong, I apologize. When the water comes in to the shore, it has to go back. And in between the waves, something is created called a riptide or a rip current, where it actually creates a current going back out to the water. Now, a smart surfer knows this is actually something I can use to my advantage. Because if I can get on this, it'll pull me out without me having to do much paddling, that I can go to the right or to the left and catch a wave. See, I sound like a surfer, you know, catch a wave. But for those that don't know that, it's actually one of the most dangerous things in the ocean one of the most dangerous things in the ocean, because you'd be going out there and you realize, oh, I'm further out than I expected. I need to turn and go back. And before you know it, you're piling against the water and it's going to exhaust you and you could die. So he uses this analogy within the book and he has a really wonderful thing to say here. Oh, wrong button. 
And he says this, in our lives, our relationships, and our work, it's easy to size up every challenge that we face as a problem to solve and to take a right or wrong, good or bad, or either or approach. Often we are correct in using this approach because we are faced with lots of problems to solve each and every day. They are like the nonstop waves that come into the shore. But, stay, sometimes we encounter a different kind of situation in our lives, attention to manage, in which traditional problem solving will no longer work for us. It's similar to a riptide where if we treat this type of situation with the conventional wisdom of problem solving, the harder we try, the further we find ourselves from the exact place we want to go. The thing is that throughout Luke's gospel, we see how Jesus is constantly, constantly challenging the cultural and religious status quo of what is appropriate. Jesus identifies with, shares meals with, heals, and literally touches, as we talked about yesterday, people that were considered outcasts. The kingdom is inconvenient to our cultural understandings, our worldviews, and sometimes even our own personal physical bubbles. Looking at Jesus' response to the hungry crowds, we see an example of not merely solving a problem, because to God, people are never a problem to solve, but of inviting God into a situation and inviting him to have his will be done. That takes humility, incredible humility, to not look to our own ability, but to the Lord for wisdom and direction. Now, with that in mind, the kingdom can be inconvenient and that um, we are called to actually respond instead of reacting to things. We need to remember that we are responsible, but we are not able. The disciples are great examples of that, and I love them for it. It doesn't matter how long we've been alive or how many years of school or experience we have under our belt. How deep, deep our relationship may or may not be with God, we will never be able to fulfill his will alone or on our own. We will always need God's calling and anointing. We cannot do life alone. This offensive statement, and it is offensive, is hopefully good news. I wrote here, can I get an amen? Because it's always good to get crowded response. Can I get an amen? This is like the most offensive thing of the gospel, is to say not only do you not have it, you have to depend on someone thing else. You have to depend on something you can't always see. And yet God is the answer. That is so offensive. If, my, if, me, if I'm not offended by that, then I must be perfect. And I'm not. So it is offensive. It challenges us. We were doing a little Bible study recently in our, one of our prayer groups, and I love this passage. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. The gospel challenges our vanity. Oh, it pokes at it. With God, we see the miraculous. People have a revelation of his love and their lives are forever changed. Now, for those of you that don't know me, I'm part of a missions organization called Steiger International. And I've been, what, what? Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I've been serving with them for the past 15 years and it's been amazing. Been able to see God do some incredible things. Back in 2001, it was my first time interacting with them when we went to this thing called the Rainbow Gathering. How many people here have heard of the Rainbow Gathering? No, it's not a gay parade. <laughs> there are other rainbows. Um, no, the Rainbow Gathering is a big New Age festival that's been happening ever since like the 60s. And the whole heart of it was, if we can get people from different worldviews, different religions, different ways of thinking together in one place, we might be able to reach world peace. And they also think we're supposed to ohm together in big circles like that at the top. So 
I went to one of these things with Steiger. I actually went to a few of them. And what it was is there's thousands of people living in a forest. No electricity, no power, lots of sex, lots of drugs. And the hope is that we can all come together in peace and bring about change. Now, we would go, not to partake in those things, we would go to bring Jesus. Because we thought, man, alive, this is, they're all here. Let's go there, let's bring the truth. They're open, they're seeking for the truth, why don't we bring it? So we would go and we would feed people and we'd have church service, well, not church services, but we'd do worship and it was wonderful. And we saw many people touched by God. In 2001, I'm pretty sure we were in Idaho. Um, one night we were sitting around a campfire and we'd been there, I mean, you're there for about two weeks. There's no showers, so you can imagine the smell. Um, so we're there for about, probably about a week at that point. We're sitting around the campfires, a few of us just playing some songs and talking. And this guy stumbles into our camp, totally just tripping. He had dropped acid, I think probably way more than he should have, not that you should, but way more than was probably okay. And he came in and he was paranoid and scared and freaking out and covered in drawings. See, the people that had given him this stuff had taken advantage of him. And he only had, I think, just his underwear on. And um, they had written with permanent marker a bunch of lies. They driven, drew, drew some obscene things on his skin. And he stumbled into our camp, humiliated, afraid, and didn't know what to do. He couldn't find it because of this. He couldn't find his camp. Didn't, couldn't find his tent, couldn't find his sleeping bag. And we just said, hey, come here. He's like, ah, oh, I don't want to bother you guys. I don't want to bother you guys. I just need some place to stay that's safe where I'm not going to get taken advantage of. We said, hey, we've got a tent. Come, use this tent. We've got a sleeping bag. You can sleep here tonight and just sleep this off. Said, okay. So he goes in there and we start praying for him. We kind of created these shifts. Where we prayed for him all night long. We're playing worship music and just praying over this guy. God, just help him to get off this trip and to be okay, that we can talk to him with a clear head tomorrow morning. So the next morning rolls around and some of us are we're out there kind of anticipating what could happen. Is this guy going to be okay? Is he going to sleep the whole day? We don't know. And he comes out and the first thing we notice is he is level-headed. He can totally talk, regular thing. But he's afraid for another reason. His skin was completely clean. What did you guys do? How did you do it? Like what? How did you, how did you get all this ink off of me? And you didn't wake me up and I'm not red. And we're sitting there and like, some of us are like crying. Some of us are just like, we don't know what, it wasn't, it was God. What? We were praying for you last night that God would speak to you while you're dreaming. He did a miracle, man. He wiped all those lies off of your body, all that obscenity. He cleaned it. It wasn't us. Trust me, we couldn't do that. And he stayed with us for another few days. And then he ended up leaving with another one of the Christian camps to go to Colorado to be part of their Christian community there. And we witnessed something incredible. We weren't able to do that. All God asked us to do is to be responsible, to pray for him, to love on him. And God said, I'm able. I love that story. And it's true. The last thing I want to look at tonight is that God empowers us to point to the cross like he did. Much like the food, Jesus' sacrifice is more than enough to satisfy our every need. But then my question is, what do our lives say? You know, Jesus' actions were all so intentional and they had meaning and they were full of life. What do my actions say? Does my life point to the cross? Does it say, go to the cross, there you'll find life. Look at me. Look at, how, look at the God's done in my life. Go there, find Jesus. 
He's not on the cross anymore, but he has life for you. Or do our lives say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but avoid the cross because it has no power. What do our lives say? I was going to welcome the band on stage, but it sounds like they're getting ready already. I was praying for us um, this past week as I've been preparing this message and just asking God, is there a word? Is there a word for us as a group? And the word that I thought he said was, do you see the hungry crowd? Do you see the hungry crowd? Much more than the 15,000 in this story, we are surrounded by people who are hungry. We are surrounded by people that need a healing and miraculous touch from God. And yet, I think it'd be so easy, like the disciples, just to ask God to take them away, to have them go somewhere else, have them take care of their own issues. Do we see the crowd? It's not always convenient. The crowd is never convenient. But how will we respond to it when we see it? And I think that's the prayer for us tonight is, God, would you open our eyes to see the people that are around us that are hungry, that are messy, that need healing, that need you, and show me how to love them. Show me how to, to, show, them how to, show, me how to show them to point to you. I want to do it well. I want to be faithful. So as we close in our last song, where does your life point? To or away from God? Do you see the crowd? Lord, I want to thank you for this word. Lord, I, th I thank you for your table that is welcome to all. And I love what Monica said in the beginning, Lord, that it's not about behaving before you belong. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to belong. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that doesn't feel like they belong. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight that heart, their heart just feels like they're too far away. Lord, I speak against that lie, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would show them how to come to you, how to come to the table, that they're invited. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't take the easy way out like the disciples suggested. Thank you, Lord, that you engaged and you brought about transformation and you still do that today. Amen.